Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. This is our weekly show, Strategy Skills. And today we are talking about how to adapt to exponential change, which all of us are seeing all over the place. We are here with Jonathan Brill. Jonathan, so glad to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Strategy Skills is one of my favorite podcasts, so I can't wait to dig in. Thank you so much, Jonathan. A good place to start this discussion will be, how did you get here? What has been your journey that led you here? Could you tell us your story? It's been a bit of a winding career, at least looking forward, but looking backwards, there was really only one path. I started off spending much of my childhood in a fishing village in Maine, in the Northeast of the United States. When I was young, we had a plentiful fish stock in the ocean. And suddenly one day, one day it collapsed and it decimated the town. It decimated the economy. And the thing about that was that this future, it was knowable, right? What was obvious if you looked at multiple factors, uh, whether it was the improvements of of fishing trawlers and, and fishing technology, whether it was stresses on the fish stock, whether it was regulation or the changing industry economics, this was an inevitability. And yet no one planned for it to happen. And the result was that most organizations, most fishermen, our town had a massive economic shock. And that's what I study, how we can take advantage of radical change. I spent 25 years running product innovation firms, ranging from small organizations to being a creative director at Frog Design, one of the larger product innovation firms on the planet. And about five years ago, HP, the computer company, reached out to me and asked if I'd like to come in as their global futurist because I'd worked in a range of different industries, I'd worked around the world, and I'd helped a number of companies build out their global product pipelines and been really successful at that. And so I came in thinking I was going to be a product guy. You know, I was going to help figure out what comes after computers. You know, And when I got there, what I realized was that the role of innovation in a major firm is so much larger. It has as much to do with processes as it does with products. And it has as much to do with setting up sales channels for the future as it does figuring out what it is that customers want. And so my role there was really to help look at things like our global location strategy, our workforce strategy in the future, how our supply chains might change because of things like changing government tensions and what our technologies need to be and what our products need to be in the case of radical change in in a world that might be completely different 10 years from now than today. And then it wasn't just sort of philosophical. It was thinking practically, what are the specific choice points between now and tomorrow that will increase our optionality and increase our potential moving forward? The result of that was in 2020, when much of the printer industry, which is our major industry, compressed and our largest U.S. peer competitor, Xerox, their revenue dropped 69% by a gap, which is how we do accounting in the U.S. 
HP stayed stable. And that, that was in a world where the, the printer industry dropped about 9.4% overall. So HP picked up share. And not only that, technologies that we were investing in around smart diagnostics that were meant to deal with the aging population, changing demographics around the world and everywhere, but most of the major economies, but India, those same technologies were hockey stick technologies that would become exponentially more valuable in the case of a pandemic, which we thought was going to be more and more likely to happen over the next decade. And so when we were looking at the future, we weren't just looking at quarterly performance for sure, but we were looking at how do we make small bets over time to add up to increased optionality when a massive change hits and turn into more potential when those options appear. A lot of what we talked about, a lot of what we thought about is what I call a rogue wave. So you've heard of a black swan event, right? These massive, incalculable changes that come out of nowhere. And when you talk to politicians, when you talk to CEOs, whenever things go bad, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that was a black swan event. We, we couldn't have known about that. But the reality when you dig down is there were multiple overlapping, individually manageable trends that collided in a time and in a place to change the world. And that was true with covid the underlying issue wasn't a pandemic. It was all of the economic development and increased connectivity that had happened around the world over the last 25 years that uh, when there was that spark accelerated the spread. Uh, if you take a look at 2008, there were overlapping issues in governance. There were overlapping issues in monetary policy. There were overlapping issues in economic policy in the United States that encouraged the lending to households that couldn't afford it and so on and so forth. And there were new exotic monetary instruments that were coming into play or financial instruments that were coming into play. And all of these things overlapped to create unmanageable change. And the people who looked at this and said, hey, there's a problem here. They did really well out of both of those events. And so the lesson here is if you look a little deeper, if you look not just at what's going on at the surface of the ocean, if you look into the undercurrents, you can start to see what could happen next. What could happen if those things overlap? What could happen if you got hit by the next rogue wave? And that's a lot of what I focus on. That's a lot of what I think about today. And, and I do a lot of advisory and, and writing and speaking about, you know, about that topic. So we need to learn to be more effective in recognizing rogue wave risks and stop pretending they do not exist. And let's say a listener is a senior member of a large consulting practice within a professional services firm like PwC based in the United States. How frequently do you think the leadership should be thinking about these threats on the horizon so they can be prepared for it. And how would your answer need to be adjusted, assuming a listener is a founder and operator of a small boutique consulting firm based in the United States as well, let's say with a team of five people? I would frame the question a little bit differently. When you take a look at the SEC proxy filings, the 10Ks, of the 10 largest publicly held companies in the United States, eight have failed to identify pandemics as a risk. When you take a look at uh, Carnival Cruise Lines, right, a company that has epidemics on its ship more often than they would like to, they understood the impact of a pandemic, and yet they failed to identify pandemics as a risk. They were understood deeply what would happen if it happened inside their ship, but they failed to understand what would happen if the contagion happened from above or happened from below. 
And so the real question isn't how do you update your risk profiles? The real question is understanding whether your risk profiles in your, what I call the four foes, your finances, your operations, your external strategies, and your external environment and your strategies, if they get hit by different types of pressure, they'll be able to survive. They'll be resilient to those changes, right? So the issue isn't like looking at and and trying to find the next COVID. It's figuring out how to make sure that you're resilient to any combination of stresses and how to turn that ability, that resilience into an opportunity. Because at the end of the day, any consulting business is highly commoditized. And the question is, how can you operate in times and in places where other people can't? How can you take risks that other people can't? That's how you create strategic advantage. And so when you take a look at risk management, it's not really about how do you mitigate threats? It's about how do you make bigger bets while taking less risk? And so that's kind of how I'd think about it a little differently. Is a small organization, I think it's probably worth taking a look at this probably once a year. In a large organization, you know, a place like KPMG, you know, this is tend to be ongoing processes. But the question is really, are you putting the right data into the conversation, not are you ready for what happens next quarter? So the other thing to think about, you know, it's really easy as the futurist and the, the long-term strategy guy in an operational company with really fast cash cycles, uh, like consulting, for people to say, hey, you know, I got to hit the quarter. I'm out of business in 16 weeks if I don't refill my bucket. My question to you, if you're that kind of person or you've got to influence that kind of organization as well, I know you don't believe you can predict the future, but are you ready for the past? We did a study that was published in HBR where we looked at major business shocks of the 20th century, and we identified about 400 of them. That's about one quarter. Now, if you believe that the world's moving faster and that it's getting more connected and When you take those two things together, more unlikely events will happen more often and things that used to not matter because they happened over there suddenly impact us over here. Then we've got to assume that that number is going to increase. And so when you take a look at threat and when you take a look at opportunity, these aren't necessarily things that happen 10 years from now, right? They're things that could happen today. And so we've got a look at that bigger picture, not just of what we've experienced in our own careers, right? One of the major mistakes, I think, in those Fortune 10 proxy disclosures was that these weren't issues that many of the managers had had direct career experience with, and they weren't familiar enough with history to understand what the long-term impact, what would happen when the first domino fell. We've got to think more about that in our organizations. In the United States, one of the things we see is in New Orleans, which is on the Gulf Coast. You know, Every 20 years or so, the media goes nuts because there's a major hurricane and then there's major flooding. And we hear about climate change and we hear about the infrastructure breaking down and we hear about all of these issues. And it's the new story for whatever 24-year-old reporter is reporting it that week. But the reality is this is a thing that happens every 20 years or 25 years. And it's been happening since the beginning of time. Yeah, this isn't a climate change issue. Climate change may be accelerating it, but it's not a climate change issue. And so we've got to think about not just what's likely to happen, what's high impact to happen, but what happens when those things what, when what we think is a low likelihood of event becomes a high likelihood event. 
you're the proper management consultant here. So you've probably got a better statistics background than I, but I believe that if you want to get down to plus or minus 2% on the likelihood of a coin flip being heads or tails, I think you need something like 25,000 coin tosses. Now, when you add that up and you say, I've got multiple variables that I'm putting into my risk profile, do you have enough data to actually make statistical assessments of the likelihood of that risk? If not, you've got to assume it's as likely as any other risk. And this is the thing that we fail to understand when we start looking at the future, when we start looking at risk profiles. But I think the other thing we need to be doing is figuring out how to help our customers manage threats more effectively. Because if we can do that, if we can even take these threats and turn them into opportunities for our customers, then the opportunities explode, right? You stop moving, you stop having a conversation as a consultant with a senior manager or a director or a junior vice president. And all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with board level issues and the, the opportunities and the, and the cash floodgates open up. And so how do you make that flip as a consultant and as a leader from talking about risk management and, and talking about these things no one wants to talk about? And how do you flip the conversation to, you know, here's the likelihood of this thing happening. Here's where, when these things overlap, they're going to impact you. And here is the massive opportunity to change your business, to, to innovate your processes, to innovate your products so that you can operate when no one else can. One example that we saw happening at Toyota in 2012, when the Daiichi nuclear power plant went down, when you saw the, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, Toyota was highly disrupted. Their supply chain was highly disrupted because they couldn't operate, yet their foreign competitors could. And they stepped back and remember, these are the leanest, greenest, just-in-time manufacturers on the planet. I mean, they invented the idea. They stepped back and they said, okay, well, where are the components in our supply chains? if they weren't available or where are the processes in our production lines where if they broke down, we wouldn't be able to operate. And they made some decisions, right? They bought a six month supply of semiconductors. So if that happened again, they wouldn't have a problem. In 2016, when there was a natural disaster in Taiwan, they were able to operate consistently where many of their competitors had challenges. Uh, and in the face of COVID, right? They had a six month backlog and they were able to operate. They had problems like everybody else, but they were able to operate when their competitors were having trouble producing because they had parts shortages. The result of that was they became the number one manufacturer of automobiles in the world during COVID. And they had the same growth issues as everybody else, but proportionally they did really, really well. And so the question is, how do you take this idea of risk management and use it to drive risk-taking? How do you make create opportunities, situations where you can take bigger bets and higher volatility than your competitors with lower risk? And that's, I think, the number one reason why you want to be looking at this and thinking about the world in this way. It's not about how do you manage threats. No one wants to talk about that. It's about how do you create opportunity. In your work, you focus on 10 undercurrents that will likely cause the next frog wave. Could you speak about some of them or all of them and what you feel our listeners need to know? Over the course of three years, we spent about $15 million looking at the major trends that will shape the next decade, the highly trackable ones, and what we can know about them, what we can't know about them. So basically figuring out what we can know about the future. And what we can talk about are kind of the three major buckets to be thinking about, the social, the economic, and the technological issues that will intersect, 
right? So when you start looking at, I know that you have a large audience in China, you have a large audience in India, you've got a large audience in the United States. Uh, one of the major issues is going to be changing demographics and how they shift at different rates in those different countries. There was a recent study by Corn Ferry that suggested that as this happens, you're going to see a high-skill worker shortage, people with four-year degree or the equivalent in every country, every major economy besides India between now and 2030. That's a huge issue that we've got to be thinking about. And we can't just be thinking about that individually. We've got to be thinking about that in the combination with other economic trends, right? You know, what happens is the cheap money policies that we have around the world right now start to taper off as we have inflationary issues or as we have other kinds of issues. And then how does that overlay with the social issues, right? With the social contract, you know, in the U.S., what we're seeing is a decrease in number of workers per retired individual. Same issue going on in China, the opposite issue going on in India right now. And so what does that mean for global competitiveness? What does that mean for where we put our people? What does that mean for, for firms? But also from a social perspective, what does that mean for regulation and cross-border trade and protectionism? As countries, as governments try to protect their tax base and pull it from outside of the country or outside of the region, as opposed to from the, the limited tax base of their, their shrinking number of workers in, in countries like China and countries like the United States. And so the issue isn't like one trend on its own. It's not one newspaper headline, right? It's taking a look at all of the headlines in the newspaper and saying, what happens when these overlap? What happens when we stop looking at individual waves of change, individual volatility, and we start to look at compound volatility when we start to look at rogue waves? Jonathan, and people, of course, tend to perform tasks that the system incentivizes. And given the 10 undercurrents, that will cause the next rock wave. What are some top priority changes organizations need to make in what system incentivizes employees to do? That's a great question. And the way I think about it at the very top level is what I call the ABCs of resilient growth. We as leaders, we as board members tend to incentivize quarterly growth. And that's important. But it's also important to realize that in a recent global study of over 2,300 global firms worth over $1 billion over a 10-year period from 2000 to 2010, only five of them generated both revenue and profit every quarter. So when we start to think about how we do hard incentives in our organization, I think we've got to consider whether we're incentivizing the behavior that we want and the kind of investments that will create the long-term growth that we need. The second thing to think about is, you know, at a more granular level, how do you create the type of thinking, the type of behavior in your firm that will encourage growth over time? The first, and it's what I call the ABCs of resilient growth. We first want to increase awareness in any financially driven, any operationally driven company that the Desire is always to put the blinders on and focus on what's directly in front of us, what's going to help us hit the quarter, especially as a consultancy advisory service. The challenge here is that you, know, you go 12 quarters out and you're in the future. This is a huge problem. You've got to get people focused on the moment, on the day-to-day, -day, but also looking outside and how the context is changing, right? In a lot of strategy services, you know, we're seeing analytics services, market research services, right? It's amazing the rate at which AI is 
doing better work than analysts are. Were you thinking about that five years ago? How would you have positioned yourself if you were taking it seriously? The second issue, so we talked about awareness, is behavior change. Even if you know that the tsunami is coming and your people don't have the skills to get off the beach, it doesn't really, really matter, does it? And so how do you create the skills to understand, to take advantage of, and to respond to radical change, to, to respond to rogue waves? In most organizations, they don't do that effectively. What we've seen since the 1980s at least in the United States and Europe, is a consistent decrease in learning and development budgets across the world, across companies, and in many cases, across governments. Well, how are you going to prepare yourself or your people for the future if you're not preparing yourself and your people for the future? It's a fascinating concept. The last piece is around culture, right? How do you create a culture of resilient growth? How do you create a culture where people are looking outside of the organization and at the same time where people are coordinated about how they're moving forward, how they're going to respond to radical change and how they're going to innovate more autonomously. I think you had uh, Gary Hamill on the other day talking about humanocracy and a lot of his ideas and discussing these things. I think he has some really great things to say, but what I would suggest is a couple of simple things you can do today in your organization. The first is taking a look at how you give directions. I'm not a great people manager. I never was, but it used to be horrible. And guy who worked for me was a former special forces operator. I mean, the kind of guy who's really overtrained, you know, has a degree in cryptography, speaks you know, six or seven languages, one of those types. One day he was frustrated and he turned to me and he said, if you want me to continue working here, here is how you are going to give me direction. First, you want to explain the context. What do we know about the situation? What don't we know? And what's likely to change? The second, you want to communicate your objective, right? Not just what do I want you to do? How does that fit into the larger puzzle? The third is what are the criteria for success and failure? And most importantly, how would we know that those were no longer valid? Fourth, and as a senior manager, this is incredibly important. How many times have you given a half direction, walked away for three weeks and come back and nothing had happened? So the fourth thing is who's in charge when you're away and how do you make decisions if the initial direction was wrong? The fifth and most important thing is if everything goes wrong, you can't solve the problem. I'm not available. What do you do next? Who do you call? If you give people those five pieces of information, their ability to innovate both autonomously and in a coordinated way without your having to be the middle manager, they go up exponentially. And so if you want to flatten your firm, if you want to increase innovation, and if you want when that rogue wave hits to be able to turn that volatility into opportunity, if you want innovation to happen fast enough, you've got to give people that information. Otherwise, they can't innovate on your behalf. The second thing, and this is also important, is how do you teach people to communicate in ways that you will understand? It used to be that we had layers of executives. You know, We have six or eight layers of management and, and a large organization. As we start to flatten that, that means that executive communications have to move farther and farther down into the organization. And we haven't been investing in doing that. And so there's a concept that I call lead, right? This is a really simple way to teach people how to speak in a way that you as a leader will understand without them taking miles and miles of your time. 
The first is logic, right? What's the logic of what they're seeing that you might not understand? The second is empathy, right? Even though they might be the intern, they think they know something about the problem that you're facing as a leader. So what is it that they think your problem is? And that way you can teach them really quickly and and backfill what they might not know about your perspective and the challenge you're trying to solve. The third is authority. Even though they might not have positional authority, why is it that they might have an understanding of what's happening next, right? In the US, we saw respiratory pandemics across Asia, and we should have seen this coming faster. What if somebody in your organization who'd grown up in Hong Kong had the tools to come in and say, this looks like what I saw before? You know, how could you get ahead of the situation? Because they say, hey, you know, I wasn't an executive, uh, but I'm the intern and I saw this thing happen before. This thing looks like that thing. They need that skill to explain what their authority is. And then the, the last piece is D, the, what's the deadline? What's the soonest and the latest we need to make a decision about the situation? Because at the end of the day, as an executive, that's really the one thing you care about, right? What's your horizon for taking advantage of or avoiding a risk? Thank you, Jonathan. And in your book, you recommend to consider assembling a cross-functional future unit that does not have PL pressures and reports to the executive committee, ideally consisting of internal and external members. Could you please elaborate on this to make it more actionable for our listeners? So this is a lot of what I did at HP, and there's a article in HBR about this. We built what we called the future unit. And so it was a team of social scientists, people with economic understanding, people who understood some of legal, people who understood technology, and people who understood business operations. And we acted as kind of an analyst group within the organization. Up until that point, all market intelligence had been dispersed across the organization. So we started to centralize it. What we rapidly discovered is if you have one team in the middle that's working across functions, but sits in one silo under one executive, like you get corporate antibodies really fast. So the second thing that we did was that we started to reach out into the organization, find all the the directors, vice presidents of strategy and planning in the organization uh, who are responsible for longer term issues and bringing them into the fold, asking them what they were seeing in Zimbabwe, asking them what they were seeing in Vietnam and working with them to build an annual report out to all of the C-suite that then went up to the board of directors. Something really interesting happens when you start to do this. You end up really quickly with a situation where everybody has to kind of be bought in to the future, kind of what it looks like, and everyone has to have participation in it. Otherwise, when you report to the entire C-suite, they're instantly communicating literally in the meeting to their people saying, is this true? Did you have buy-in on this? And if you have that alignment, you can create real change in the organization. You can create a common view of the future and an organ to sense when that view of the future is becoming more or less likely. These kinds of programs, they've been very successful in companies like Shell Oil. They, They do this. They've managed to avoid a tremendous amount of risk and take opportunity. As a result of this, this happens across the U.S. military. The uh, Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. is building out a stronger force-aid capability like this as we speak. And so it's becoming a more prevalent way of looking at the world. Companies like Salesforce do this really well. And I think if we're going to move into a more volatile future, it's, it's really important that we have 
both the common cross-functional uh, communications organs to discuss it. I think of the octopus as an analogy to reach out our tentacles into more places. And at the same time, to make sure that while we're exploring in different areas and different parts of the world, make sure that we're moving in one direction, that there's some alignment between what the tentacles are doing and what's going on in the big brain. Jonathan, in the book, you also mention four categories of risk. You talk about financial, operational, external, and strategic. Senior managers are tasked with financial, external, and strategic risks. And mid-level and junior managers are usually taught to focus on operational risks, which are generally less threatening. Yet everyone needs to be looking out at the ocean, your analogy, because in the storm, waves come from all sides. So junior people on the ground will often see issue first, but don't know what it means. So organizations need to teach them what to look for and when to alert senior managers. And organizations need to install mechanisms to ensure those warnings are noticed. So could you speak about what organizations need to ask junior and mid-level managers to look out for and what kind of mechanisms are required to ensure the warnings are noticed? So you talked about the four foes. Uh, financial operations, external and strategic change. And when I talk about risk, what I mean is the amount of change over time, the measure of volatility, and that's a measure of threat, but it's also a measure of opportunity. What you see is that more billionaires are actually minted in financial downturns than an upturn. So we need to be thinking about not just the threats, but the opportunities. Where are those happening next to? My experience in people who don't have elite MBAs who don't have that kind of general management training as they typically have a tremendous operational skill within their silo, right? Within their function, but they don't have the knowledge and they haven't had the communications with people in other silos necessarily to understand what these things mean when they overlap, right? What would uh, an issue with your supply chain mean for your assets? In 2016, there was a natural disaster in Taiwan that impacted the semiconductor industry. And because Toyota had planned for it, they, they were able to take advantage of it. My point is that you know, if you had a purely operational focus about just-in-time and so on and so forth, you wouldn't be thinking about those external threats as a junior manager, but you could spot them if you were looking at the bigger picture. And then the last piece is demand forecasts, right? What would a change in demand forecast mean for assets? How could it get ahead of that kind of issue? And so you've got to get your junior people thinking more holistically about your organization, especially if you're going to flatten it, because all of those middle layers of management who used to know more and more and more about the general management of the organization, they're not there anymore. Your junior people need to be looking out for the icebergs. They have to be looking out for the next rogue wave, because the reality is if you take a look at financial, operational, external, and strategic risk, 75% of the major risks between 1999 in 2019 for publicly held U.S. companies were strategic. They were issues mainly with demand forecasts or external changes. There was a financial disaster. There was uh, some other thing that happened. They weren't operational risks and they weren't financial risks. And so we've got to get our people thinking bigger. We got to get them looking outside of the organization. And we have to teach them things like the lead method that I talked about earlier, logic, empathy, authority, and deadlines. 
in terms of how they communicate with you so that you can hear what they're saying when they might not have the exact words for the risk that they're seeing or the opportunity that they're seeing in front of you. Jonathan, it feels like the waves are getting bigger, but many executives fail to appreciate how much bigger they will get. So true. Yeah. If we look at emerging technologies, social trends, demographic shifts, economic and public health events, individually these waves are disruptive, but when they converge, they produce sea changes that shock companies and governments. COVID-19 has decimated businesses that require physical contact. Fortunately, we know a lot more about rock waves than we used to, thanks to your book as well. But to take advantage of that knowledge, organizations will have to abandon some deep-seated habits in the way they prepare for the future. What are some deep-seated habits organizations will need to abandon to prepare for their future? The first is assuming that the future will look like the recent past. It won't. You know, you talked about the decimation of companies in the face of COVID-19. In the U.S., something really interesting is happening with insolvencies and bankruptcies, which is when you look at a company and all of its daughter companies, the number of bankruptcies is at an all-time low right now since World War II. I mean, think about that. How could that happen in a world uh, where we had, they think, a 3.5% drop in economic growth in the U.S. last year? That makes no sense. What we need to be thinking about is what happens is all of the things that are going on right now, they start to collide and they start to create radical change, right? We're going to likely see insolvencies and bankruptcies go from far below the level of creative destruction to the far above the level in, in the United States. We make a basic assumption that the globalism and trade harmonization will continue to increase in the world. And yet all of the indicators are that's not the case. We take a look at innovation and the U.S. is particularly guilty of this. And we think that innovation will continue to happen from the West and that innovation will continue to happen from the West. And the indicators are that's not the case. Uh, by 2030 and maybe earlier, China's likely to be producing more high quality patents what are called triadic patents that are protectable around the world than the United States. That's not just weak patents that are only protectable in, in China. These are really fantastic patents. And so when you start looking at that and, and you realize that China's already producing more high quality triadic patents than Germany, this is a sea change. And the issue isn't looking at any one of these types of trends, these types of changes individually. It's, it's looking at what happens when they collide. There are just so many examples in chapter two of the book that cover this in depth, uh, that they can give you a really good baseline for starting to think about these changes and, and sharing them in your organization. Thank you, Jonathan. The last question I wanted to ask before we speak about your amazing book is a lot of listeners now thinking trends compound on top of each other, just like patient on five different medications and they start interacting. But the analysis gets so complex. I can imagine the idea of being able to analyze this to get actionable insights seems difficult to even imagine. Where do you start? So for listeners, what can they do on Monday morning, 8 a.m. to start making change towards a better future? To answer your question is, it is possible for this to get incredibly complex and you need PhD economists to, to start running the statistics. And 
but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you just take a look at your finances, your operations, your external environment and your strategy, and you say, okay, well, what if 10 things that have appeared in the headlines of the Economist this month or the South China Morning Post this month, they came true and they overlapped. What would that mean? You know, what would happen if they overlapped here? How would they impact my four foes? And how could I take advantage of them or help my customers take advantage of them? Like that's the first challenge, right? How do you make sure that you've got a strong enough systems model of your organization to pressure test it? And then how do you make sure that no matter what happens, you're ready to take advantage of the situation? Right? Because we can't prepare for every single possible rogue wave. Right, We can't prepare for a meteor strike, but we can prepare for the impacts of those types of situations. Just like we couldn't have necessarily prepared for COVID today, but we could have prepared to take advantage of the situation. You know, A company like Amazon did that, a company like Zoom did that. But it's not just major organizations that have to be able to do this. Like my friend's family farm in Ohio, maybe $10, $15 million business, also had one of their best years ever as a result of planning for radical change. And they were able to pivot their organization to take advantage of this radical change by shifting from shipping to 800 Michelin star restaurants around the world to shipping to consumers. In fact, this year they shipped by weight more vegetables than at any time in their history. And so this isn't about having more money or smarter people or better infrastructure. It's about a mindset of how do we take change? How do we take volatility and the fact that it's increasing and turn it into growth? This is such an amazing example of a company that we're willing to adapt and be resilient and look at, okay, we lost a lot, but what can we gain in this situation? How can we serve our customers? And maybe it is not the customers we usually used to serve. Maybe it is a new type of customer that needs us right now. And we are in a position to be able to help them. Thank you, Jonathan. This was amazing. Can you please share with us more about your book? And I will highly recommend to all our listeners to read it. It's a great book. And could you please also share with us where listeners can learn more about you? And lastly, is there any other thoughts you would like to share? Maybe something you wish I asked you. So any other final thoughts you would like to share? Fantastic. Yeah, I do have a thought. What I see so much of the time when I look at organizations is they use the strategy that's worked before when they're playing a new game. And what we all know, if we've ever been to a casino, is that your poker face won't work at the roulette table. And so what we need to think about is what's the game we're playing before we choose our strategy? If you want to learn more about me, you can find me at jonathanbrill.com. Please follow me on LinkedIn and you can find Rogue Waves pretty much wherever books are sold in the US, uh, amazon.com and the same thing across Europe. I'm not sure uh, what the stocking is on Lazada and, and whatnot across Asia. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I'm sure you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hope you did. And Jonathan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. 
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.